Welcome to the Pod of Asclepius, your healthcare technology podcast for the technical crowd. We're bringing the technical experts of engineering, entrepreneurship, data science, and regulation straight to your earbuds. And here's your host, Glenn Wright Colopy. Hey, folks, welcome back to the show. Today's guest is going to be talking with us about something completely new. As you know, many of the show's topics tend to focus around digital health and data, and we haven't touched much on the physical engineering and lab science side of things. But that all changes today. Dana Al Solomon from MIT is going to be covering these topics, and I'll be learning right along with you because this is completely new and outside of my realm. And to help us get up to speed, Dana has made an awesome set of slides complete with cool figures and animations. So if you're listening to audio only, don't worry, she explains everything very clearly. But once you finish listening, hop over to the YouTube channel so you can check out the cool visual material that Dan has made. If you're watching on YouTube already, perfect. Just sit tight and enjoy the pictures. And with no further ado, I'm very excited to introduce you, Dana Al-Solomon. Hey. Yeah, hi, so my name is Dana Al-Solomon. I did my PhD at Imperial College London, so I just finished. It was on biomedical engineering, and particularly I was engineering hydrogel-based platforms to detect an emerging class of biomarkers called circulating cell-free nucleic acids. So I just finished my PhD and I'm currently doing a postdoc at the Joya Lab at MIT. Well, that's really cool. From your title, I know like three or four of those words. I know engineering, I know what a sense is, I know what a cell is, and I know what biomarkers are and acid. But yeah, this is going to be really fun because this is going to be our first episode with a real hardcore engineer. So thanks so much for coming on and we're excited. Also, to do yourself a little bit more justice, you also won the IET James Award this year. Yeah, that just happened back in London in October. It was a great honor. So I got the IET William James Award for some of my PhD work. So that was very exciting. It's an honor to be there. Well, you certainly are reflecting very well in your field, and it's really impressive the amount of work that you got done over the course of your doctorate. So it's nice to have a high output person on the show. But without any further delay, let's get an introduction to what you're working on. Awesome. Yeah. So my field of research, I guess, can be considered under biomolecular engineering and particularly biosensor development. So as I mentioned, we're designing these hydrogel base platforms to detect an emerging class of cancer biomarkers called circulating cell-free nucleic acids. So I'll refer to them as CFNAs. The really cool thing about them is that they can be found in biological fluids. And so we can sample them in a minimally invasive manner from a so-called liquid biopsy, as opposed to a traditional tissue biopsy. So I'll start with giving you an overview of what our motivation was and why would we want to do this. So the main issue and challenge in the field is that current diagnostics for cancer are either very late stage, inaccurate or invasive. So if I give you the example of prostate cancer, When a patient presents clinical symptoms, a blood test is typically performed to measure the levels of a blood-based biomarker, and that's called PSA, or prostate-specific antigen. So if the patient's levels are greater than a particular threshold, like four nanograms per milliliter, then this patient has to undergo an invasive surgery, and that's typically a tissue biopsy. So unfortunately, this blood-based biomarker, PSA, is not actually specific to cancer, so it can be elevated in other benign conditions. So you get a high level of false positive. So up to 65% of patients get false positive results. So my whole PhD is trying to address this challenge. So we want to produce a blood test that is much more accurate and less invasive than current techniques. 
Cool. So just to summarize to make sure that I'm following you correctly, what you're working on is the current methods are either not particularly invasive, but relatively inaccurate with these high false positives. And mm -hmm. when you have a high false positive, then it sort of, it pushes you down the line to needing an invasive surgery, just or an invasive procedure, just to mm -hmm. check. And exactly. so what you're going to do is by with these biofluid based mechanisms, you're going to try to both increase the false positive rate and then does your test then go to the more invasive procedure or is it to actually bypass the invasive procedure as well? So ideally, and the hope and the aim is that it completely bypasses the invasive surgery. So you wouldn't need to do that. So the reason why there is this tissue biopsy is to confirm the fact that there's a neoplasm. So with this blood test or PSA, it's usually used as a screening test. So just as an initial screening to check if there is potential for cancer. And so a doctor wouldn't immediately diagnose a patient with cancer just based on this PSA. And so if you have biomarkers that are much more specific and sensitive clinically, then you don't need to do a tissue biopsy whatsoever. Yeah. Cool. Well, so Dana, you're going to save us a lot of pain, I guess. <laughs> That, that's the hope, yes. So not just pain, also time and improving patient compliance as well. So patients don't want to go and, and do these invasive surgeries. So if you can offer them a much more practical, something quicker and something less painful, and they're most likely going to be much more cooperative. It's funny you should mention patient compliance because every other interview that we've had at some point, no matter what they're talking on, they discuss patient compliance and the need that, you know, we have these cool engineering or data science techniques but it doesn't work if you can't actually get the patients to comply. So you're knocking out all these cool things. Let's not delay this anymore. All right. Yeah. So I just wanted to mention what's happening in the field, that there's this big drive, as I said, to go from invasive tissue biopsy to a liquid biopsy. And I wanted to mention the other advantages of going towards a liquid biopsy, particularly for cancer. So we know that a tumor, it's a large surface area. So if we're just getting a small a biopsy of that, that can introduce bias to the sample. So what we're going to do is going through to a liquid biopsy, we can get a much more comprehensive tissue profile. But other than that, we can also now monitor disease over time. So we can use this liquid biopsy over time to monitor a response, a patient's response to therapy, for example, and use it as a monitoring technique, not just as an initial diagnostic because it's so minimally invasive. So that's a good thing. And one of the types of biomarkers that we're interested in that's kind of on the rise and has a lot of potential for cancer is, as I said, these CFNAs. So in my PhD, we focus on two classes of CFNAs that I'm going to discuss briefly. So the first one is called microRNA. So it's a class of RNA that's very short and has very important gene regulatory functions. But in the case of cancer, the levels get deregulated. And the interesting thing is that the expression profiles are disease-specific. So if we know that these five microRNAs get upregulated or downregulated, then we can say based on that not only what the cancer is, but also its stage. So that's also an additional piece of information that's very important. And the second class of CFNAs that I'm also going to target in my PhD is called cell-free DNA. And these are short fragments of DNA that also get their levels get deregulated in cancer. So that's a kind of a general overview of what the biomarkers are and, and what we're trying to target. Yeah, that's really cool. So one of the advantages of having it being quick and non-invasive is that you can do repeated measurements on these tumors. You can do repeated measurements on the patient, which means mm -hmm. then you can, I guess, 
track the composition of the tumor over time? Exactly, yeah. And that's very important because we know things change over time. Tumor heterogeneity is a very, very big issue. And being able to capture that heterogeneity of a tumor is very important. Yeah. So, and on the issue of tumor heterogeneity, is that because the tumor itself is prized of multiple types of cancer cells? So in a single tumor, you have different types of DNA. Mm -hmm. The cells are made of different genetic material. So yeah, so if you do look at a tumor spatially, then you can get one side of the tumor expresses particular genes and the other side expresses a different set of genes. So that's one issue. So even you have this spatial difference. But the other thing is that tumors evolve over time and they evolve in response to treatment. And so you need to be able to measure this in a spatially resolved manner, but as well as a time resolved manner. Well, this just keeps getting more and more interesting. I won't delay us any further, but the audience can thank me for inviting Dana on because this is really cool. Awesome. So the first platform that we've developed in my PhD and I wanted to discuss first is for the detection of microRNA, that first class of CFNAs I've discussed. So there are obviously some challenges with detecting them. So I wanted to mention firstly the main challenges of detecting CFNAs and why aren't there blood tests to detect a cancer at this point in time. So first thing I wanted to mention is that these CFNAs are found in biological fluids, but they're very, very low concentrations. So your technology needs to be very sensitive. The other thing is, especially with microRNA, a microRNA has a very high sequence homology among family members, so they're very similar. And so your technology needs to be highly sequence specific. And the other thing that is that they're very short in length. And they exist in different forms. So microRNA can be bound to different proteins and they can also be encapsulated within vesicles. So that presents a few challenges. And what that means is that the state-of-the-art technologies to detect them now need to use very complex and multi-step procedures to detect them, um, typically with first sample pre-processing, as well as the use of amplification and the use of different enzymes to amplify that signal in order to get the right sensitivity. So what I wanted to mention is that the state-of-the-art techniques are all research-based. So they're too complex and not amenable with point-of-care devices, so they can't be used in a clinical setting. That's what my PhD is trying to address. We want to make it so simple that you can use it on the benchtop at a GP's clinic. So. With that said, I just wanted to dive directly into what's the new thing that we've introduced in my PhD, the novelty, and how we're trying to address these technical challenges. Um, and the first thing I wanted to mention and give you guys an idea on is this biomaterial, which is highly versatile, and it's called hydrogels. So hydrogels are really interesting. They're three-dimensional networks of hydrophilic polymer chains. And then a cool thing about them is they swell in water. And for chemists and engineers, they're really cool because we can modify their physical properties, like their porosity, and we can change their chemistry, like their charges and their hydrophobicity, in order to then address technological limitations. So they're really nice to play around and to adjust whatever technological limitations that you need to address. I just wanted to mention also that they are used in the field for different reasons. You can use them as sensors, you can use them as encapsulation matrices, and there's also this whole field about smart hydrogels. This is very cool, yep. The first platform that I'm going to be discussing, as I said, is for the detection of cancer-specific microRNA. And it's based on a strategy called 
oligonucleotide templated reactions, or OTR. It is a mouthful, but it's much simpler than it sounds. So what we do with this strategy is we know the sequence of the microRNA. So in this slide, it's shown in blue. And so we design, based on this sequence, two synthetic mimics of DNA, and they're called PNA probes, or sensing probes called peptide nucleic acids, or PNAs. So in this slide, they're shown in green and in red. Each of these probes that we design and synthesize in our lab are functionalized with a non-fluorescent molecule as the probe head. So it's shown in green and red there. So what happens is that in the presence of your cancer-specific microRNA, if it's found in your biological fluid, what happens is that these two PNA probes will hybridize through Watson-Crick base pairing to the target microRNA. And that brings these probes' heads in close proximity and that forces an interaction between them. In our case, this reaction that occurs results in a fluorescent signal. So that's our analytical signal. The higher the fluorescence that we get, the more of that particular microRNA that you have in your biological fluid. So I also wanted to mention that this optimization of this particular reaction occurred just before my PhD, so by the LADAM lab. And what I was introducing is this concept of hydrogels. So the issue with this reaction and with a lot of oligonucleotide templated reactions is that these probes, the PNAs, can interact with one another non-specifically. So even in the absence of target, they can interact and that results in this false positive, so background noise signal that affects your sensitivity. So what we're trying to do is address this and what we did is introduce these diffusion restricting media, so hydrogels, in order to prevent this non-specific interaction. So exactly what we did is we've immobilized these two PNA probes within hydrogels, particularly the agarose shown in A and alginate, a different type of hydrogel shown in B. So I'm just going to mention the alginate. It's an interesting hydrogel where you can add your PNA probes into the alginate solution. And then what happens is you can place that into a solution such as calcium chloride or a divalent cation. And that cross-links the solution resulting in a hydrogel bead. So it's a really nice way of encapsulating different media and localizing your reaction. So we have these alginate beads in which we can now have oligonucleotide templated reactions. And in fact, this was the first example of OTR being conducted in any media apart from aqueous media. So that's the first thing. But the second thing we found is that with hydrogels, we can significantly reduce this background noise signal. Even if we increase the amount of our sensing probes, we can still minimize and almost eliminate this background noise signal. And what that means in a clinical setting is that now we can detect much lower concentrations of our microRNA present. In fact, that works out to be over three orders of magnitude improvement in the sensitivity, just without the use of any enzymes and without the use of any amplification processes, just by tailoring this hydrogel and this biomaterial to do what we want it to do. So I have on the right just a fluorescence image of bead where we don't have any of the targets. So ideally this would be in the future, a patient that is clear of cancer, a healthy patient, and then what you have, this is obviously idealized, but if a patient would have cancer, then you have a high level of that microRNA and you get this very fluorescent bead. Cool. So just to 
recap for people who are less familiar with the lab sciences. When you say that a method was optimized prior to your doctorate, what that means is we know that some type of biological or chemical reaction it happens and it's supposed to occur in a certain way. But in order to actually make it function the way we intended to, a further tuning process is needed. So is that what you mean by optimization? Yeah, so what happened before my PhD is that this particular, uh, the gnucleotide templated reaction with that, uh, the two combinations of reaction probes, so it's actually a thiol and a coumarin, that combination where it reacts to produce a fluorescent signal, I wasn't involved in creating that, just that reaction itself. That was happened before me. But unfortunately, they found through uh, studies is that it's not sensitive enough as it is. So if you conduct the reaction in solution as normal, it can't detect the very, very low concentrations of microRNA that are clinically relevant. And that's where I came in and that's where I introduced then the hydrogels in order to optimize further and, and change completely kind of the conditions of how the OTR occurs. And that allowed us then to reach the sensitivity levels that are required for clinical settings. Cool. So basically, there was this known biological signal, and what you're really helping do is both magnify the signal and decrease the noise that's necessary to detect it at a clinically relevant level, so at a time where there's still a clinical value to detecting this. Yes, that's, that's correct, yeah. All right. Um, so that was a brief discussion of how we were detecting microRNA, and that was one subset of the cell-free nucleic acids that are interesting. Another class of cell-free nucleic acids that we're trying to detect in my PhD is cell-free DNA, shown on the left. So cell-free DNA are fragments of DNA, about 100 to 1,000 base pairs in length, and they're released by cells during the processes of a cell death, like apoptosis and necrosis. So that occurs naturally and physiologically. But what happens is with cancer patients, you see that they have a much higher fraction of lower lengths of CFDNA. So their cell-free DNA is much shorter, essentially. And they have this peak at 150 base pairs. So knowing this, we said, okay, this is potentially a way of targeting cancer patients and of detecting cancer patients compared to healthy patients. They have this short DNA compared to healthy patients. And the other thing is that the concentrations are much higher than healthy patients. They tend to have a lot of DNA there because tumors, as they evolve, there's a lot of cell death processes that releases fragments of DNA into the bloodstream. So this is our biomarker. And the different thing about it is that in this case, we're not detecting and we're not interested in the sequence itself. We're actually just interested in the length. So can we give, uh, with our technology, can we design something that gives us the length of the DNA as well as its concentration, but not necessarily its sequence? So how we did that is by a different technology. It's called nanopore sensing. So nanopore is really interesting. It's a single molecule-based technology. And the idea of how it works is you have, it's a nanometric aperture that separates two conductive solutions. So for example, KCL. And what happens is if you apply a voltage bias across this chamber, then you can electrophoretically drive charged molecules through. And DNA and other nucleic acids, because of their backbone, they are charged. So now they respond to this electric field and can be drawn through the channel. And now if you're looking at the current, 
And you can see as the molecule goes through, it blocks that current and you get this change in the current profile. And based on how long the molecule stays in that aperture, uh, you get information about the dwell time and current blockade. And that gives you information about the size of the molecule. This is a really cool animation. So anyone who's listening to audio yeah. alone, definitely switch over to the video version because what we're seeing here is it looks like a strand of DNA that's going through a sensor. And as the strand of DNA goes through, blocks, I guess, the mm -hmm. current. Mm -hmm. And so as long as it's blocked, then we can see how long it's blocked, which then tells us how long the DNA is. Yeah, and that's also interesting because from the little bit I know about nanopore technology, one of the reasons that people are also excited about it was that you could, for example, getting back to tumor heterogeneity, is that if you could go and actually analyze cancer tumor cells on a cell-by-cell -cell basis, you could actually see explicitly which cells had which type of SNPs and which types of genetic markers so that you can see which ones are correlated with each other. Obviously, what you're doing is a little bit different because you're not, as you said, not interested in the actual sequence, but simply the length of it because that's the biological indicator for what your clinical area is. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, so there's Oxford. Now, if you're really interested in uh, nanopores and how they're being used currently, not only to detect DNA, but exactly to a sequence DNA and sequence the entire genome, then you should look into Oxford Nanopore and their technologies. So they do exactly that. They sequence DNA by passing it through a nanopore. And interestingly, their technology and the, the traditional type of nanopore sensing is done with biological nanopores that are extracted from bacteria. Um, so what we're doing differently is, as I mentioned, we're not detecting the sequence, but also we're using a synthetic nanopore. And the reason for that is that it's much easier to make and it's much tailorable. So we can change its properties much more easily than you can a, a biological nanopore. So yeah, if you're interested, uh, definitely look into Oxford Nanopore Technologies. Yeah, so I wanted to go on from here and mention that obviously nanopore sensing is a big field and one of the main challenges of the field is the fact that DNA goes through this nanopore way too quickly. So under standard conditions, DNA goes through this pore at about 30,000 nucleotides per millisecond. So what that means is that you're limited to detect only very large DNA. So let's say over 2,000 nucleotides in length or 2,000 base pairs in length. And as I mentioned before, in our particular clinical application, so for cancer, we want to detect 150 base pairs. So we're way off. So that was the first technical challenge that I was trying to address. Can we now change the properties of this pore or engineer it in a different way such that it allows us to detect much shorter DNA. And I have to mention that other people and research labs have tried different ways to reduce the size of the pore and to change its properties. But mostly what happens is that the techniques they use are very complex. They're quite expensive. And the ways of functionalizing the pore are they're essentially way too complex and they don't reach the right uh, sensitivity required. So that's where I came in, and that's where my PhD starts. Also, once again, I've managed to use hydrogels to address this limitation. Um, so I'll explain exactly how in the next slide. So what we did is we understand from our previous project that hydrogels are diffusion-restricting media, and they can kind of slow down the diffusion of different molecules. So why not use that in exactly this application? So what we did is we've incorporated hydrogels within the pore itself. So I'll go back and just describe what our nanopore is. I said it's a synthetic nanopore, but it's made of 
laser pulling glass capillaries. So you have this glass capillary, you heat it in the middle and you pull it. And at the end, that produces an opening of about 20 nanometers. So it's just bigger than the size of a DNA and it hugs it perfectly. So with this glass in nanopore, I'll call it a nanopipette. DNA goes through way too quickly, as I mentioned. But now if we introduce a hydrogel inside, and this hydrogel we actually designed and synthesized in our lab based on a polymer called polyvinyl alcohol. If you're interested in the chemistry of that, it's shown in B here in the slide. And what we did with polyvinyl alcohol, we've introduced different uh, groups like a methacrylate group. And what that means is that it's essentially a polymer in solution and you can pipette it into this glass capillary and then you UV crosslink it from the outside and it just gels within the pore, creating hydrogen mesh structure within the pore itself. So we have a visual of this if you're interested. We've looked at this under SEMs or scanning electron microscopy and you can see this really interesting interconnected mesh structure of around a pore size of around 20 nanometers. So a cool thing is that we made our hydrogel so that its pore size is even very similar to the opening of the pore. And uh, if you look into the science of it, it works out to be one of the main reasons why we have very high sensitivity compared to other techniques. So what happens is that, as I mentioned, uh, shown in red in our slide, for a 250 base pair DNA, you won't see it at all if there's no hydrogel in the pore. But if you do have hydrogel, you can very clearly see single molecules of 250 base pairs go in. And that occurs at around 300 milliseconds. So it's almost like in real time, you can see single molecules DNA and, and you know exactly their size as they go through. Yeah, so that's the general overview of the technology and how it works. This is extremely impressive and it's also just a little bit mind-blowing to think that using your knowledge of chemistry that you can actually create something you can sort of engineer this process that operates on the nanometer level you know it's crazy working with things that are so much larger and to think that you can be creating things that work consistently and derive signals on a level this small. Yeah, so that's really interesting. And the first time I actually saw the DNA or the 250 base pair DNA go through is kind of mind boggling because you don't imagine DNA as single strands. You imagine much larger, think of cells maybe, that's how small you can see under a microscope. But if now you're talking about small strands of DNA and seeing them go through, like as you look at the screen, seeing these molecules go through your sensor, it's, it's quite interesting and, and quite mind-boggling when you see it the first time. So it's quite cool, yes. Yeah, the other bit that just came to my mind was like, looking at this and thinking, it's like, and it's real. Well, not strange, but very fascinating that this is an actual real technological innovation that can operate in the bubble. But let's not delay any further. Yeah, awesome. So what I wanted to mention, and you brought this up, is that we can kind of tailor the chemistry of the hydrogel to get down to nanometer scale. So we can, in this slide, I've shown you that we can go down to 20 nanometers, and that allowed us to detect 250 base pairs. But can we get even better? Can we make this even smaller? And can we change the properties of the hydrogel, not just the size of the pores, so 20 nanometers, but can we change the chemistry of it, like introduce charges or hydrophobic 
groups to do even more and have even more control of the movement of DNA and what we call the translocation of DNA. And that you can do with hydrogels. And this is why I really like hydrogels. So in this slide, I show you that we can tune the chemical properties. We can, by adding negative charges through carboxylate groups, and we can add uh, change the hydrophobicity by adding like phenyl groups. And that just these two molecules gives you completely different shape for the DNA as it goes through, a different translocation shape. So as I have here, DNA tends to go much quicker through the first case, and then it goes through very, very slowly if there are hydrophobic groups, because you know DNA is hydrophilic. So when it encounters these hydrophobic groups through the pore, it slows down even further. Um, so that means we can detect even smaller strands of DNA. And then, as I mentioned, with the physical properties or the porosity, we can go down to 20 nanometers, but even more, we can go down to 12 nanometers, so almost half the size of the glass capillary itself. And we can do that by introducing new crosslinks or additional crosslinks. And we, based on all of this information and our, all of these tools, the chemistry tools, we try to find what is the best kind of size and what is the best size of hydrogel and the best property of hydrogel that allows us to detect DNA in the best way possible. And you found that that was the last case where the pore size is about 12 nanometers. So if you can get the hydrogel to be even smaller, then you can very clearly detect DNA at that level. So what we did with that moving forward, I'll give a very general overview, is that we looked at different sizes of DNA all across the clinically relevant range from 10,000 base pairs down to 100 base pair DNA. And with uh, the different sizes, if you look at the slide, you can see very, very clearly you get a very different signal. So the larger the molecule, the larger the signal, the larger the dwell time as well. Yeah. Just to recap quickly to make sure I'm following you, you can use these chemical structures that you have, like Legos that you piece on, and by having your hydrogel being sort of amenable to adding these little extra Lego pieces, it is changing that signal, the signal that you're originally trying to detect on the length of the biomarker. So going back somewhere in the middle, there's this clinically relevant length of the DNA. Yes. Um, yeah, in the DNA. And by adding these Lego pieces, you can really increase that sort of signal to noise ratio for detecting that length. And so you get that precision. Is that it? Is that Yes. Yeah. So actually a really nice way of thinking about hydrogels because they're made of polymers. So you can think of each strand of this basic polymer like a necklace, right? And so the necklace is made of these different beads and you can then add pendant groups. So you can add a different beads that have different functionalities or different charges. You can add them wherever you want and you can add however many, let's say, negative charges you want as if you're creating a necklace with different beads on it. So similar to the idea of Legos, but more of like a chain and you can add beads that have different properties in them to do whatever, to target whatever molecule that you're interested in. Yeah. That's a really awesome analogy. Much better than Legos. That's, that's fine. I mean, I think both work, but if you actually look at the fiber, it really does look as, like this long necklace or this long string of beads. But yeah. So the last thing I wanted to mention, so this is just wrapping up, is because of this ability to really control the DNA, uh, and sorry, slow down the DNA, we really had 
single molecule control. And that's something that we wanted to investigate because one of the main challenges, as I mentioned before, is that in your blood, you have a lot of different molecules, right, that are charged that can interact with your signal. One of them is that you have a lot of cell-free DNA that's not physiologically, uh, sorry, that it's not clinically relevant. It's just naturally released by cells when they die. So how can we filter out all of this other junk um, and all this other background signal of cell-free DNA that's not relevant and only look at the size that we're interested in. So we know we have the sensitivity, but how can we filter that out? And so one thing we then looked at is because it's so slow, we can now capture the DNA. So if we apply voltage bias, we capture large DNA. And because it's very slow, we have real-time control about now reversing the voltage. So if we reverse the voltage, we now can kind of shoot out the DNA from the pore if it's not clinically relevant to us. So for example, I've captured now in this PowerPoint slide, you can see that I've captured a 10,000 base pair DNA and it goes in there and it stays there for 10 seconds. It stays there for a minute. And because I know it's very big and it's not clinically relevant, what I did is I reversed my voltage. So I applied minus one volt and I shot out to that DNA. I said, okay, you're not interesting in the case of cancer and I'm going to wait for other smaller molecules to come by. So that's something that was that's really, really cool. And that control over single molecules was very interesting because the next study that we did is that now let's try to kind of model disease or model biological fluid. And so our model is very simplified, but we had a mixture of three DNAs in our pot. So we tried to kind of make this mixture with 250 base pair DNA, 500 base pair DNA, and 10,000 base pair DNA. So the 250 would be the interesting one. And so what we did is we ran the assay or we started up trying to detect the DNA with our technology. And as you can see, you can detect 250 base pairs and then larger signal with the 500 base pairs. And that goes on very nicely. But then at some point in time, you get this 10,000 base pair DNA, which we know is not relevant and goes in the pore and it blocks it. And what we do is, okay, this is not interesting. We reverse the voltage and exclude that out and then continue on with our measurement um, to get information about the clinically relevant DNA. Yeah, I hope that made sense. Yeah, cool. It sort of rem reminds me a little bit of like signal processing mm. where you have a bit of that, you know, the sort of bandpass filter on your biological signal. Yeah, that's exactly it. And it's actually, instead of kind of applying the filter after or before, because the signal is actually quite big and bigger with the things that are not clinically relevant, it's gonna be very difficult to apply a filter. And so instead of doing that before or after, you can do that during the process of the experiment itself. And because it goes through so slowly, and this can never be done without the hard job being present. So you can, you have that immediate control over the DNA that goes in. It's too big, you just exclude. If not, you continue on. Yeah, so that's pretty much it. Um, I wanted to just give a conclusion over what, it, what we've discussed. So what we did is we've introduced hydrogels into kind of our toolbox of techniques for biosensor development. We started off with sensing technologies that are already existing, but we know that there are limitations to these sensors like nanopores, as I mentioned, and oligonucleotide templated reactions or OTRs. And by introducing hydrogels and really tailoring their chemical properties or physical properties, we could exactly address these technological limitations and reach the sensitivity and specificity required for clinical settings. And hopefully, in the future, this will lead to earlier, uh, but also better and less invasive diagnostics for cancer. Yeah.
Well, Dana, thanks for putting together such a great presentation. I think your work really epitomizes what we're trying to highlight with the show. First of all, you put a massive amount of, you're doing cool work. It's very clinically relevant. It's got a great engineering problems, especially taking in your understanding of biology and chemistry for the engineering, and then seeing it all the way down to its clinical application and seeing how the clinical application works all the way back to the engineering problem itself and how it informs it. You've also just done a fantastic job at just illustrating the problems that you're working with. So again, anyone who's just listening to this, definitely come and check out the video. Dana did a great job in helping us understand this. Awesome. Thank you so much. I just wanted, after thanking you and before leaving, I just wanted to obviously thank my PhD supervisor and everybody who was involved in this. Obviously, this is not a one-person thing. Um, there's a lot of people involved, particularly my supervisor, Dr. Sylvain Ledam, as well as many collaborators. And if you want to know exactly who, please look at the PowerPoint slide. And if you have any more questions to contact me, I'll give you my email and everything. It's on the slides for any like future collaborations or projects or questions about this work. Thank you so much for having me. Well, not only is Dana interesting to talk to, but she's also very generous with sharing credits. And if you want to contact Dana, look her up on her MIT website. Yes. So I'm in the Doyle lab at MIT. And uh, yeah, it should be very easy to find me from there. Great. And in this group of fine researchers, which of them are in the most recent book that you've helped publish? Oh, right. Yes. So we just got a book being published by El Salve. It's called Bioengineering Innovative Solutions for Cancer. And my PhD supervisor, Dr. Sylvain Ledam, is the editor. And one of the previous postdocs of our lab up here, his name is Jason Chang. He's also the editor of the book. It's a really, really good book showing how you can use engineering concepts, as I mentioned throughout this talk, uh, to address and tackle cancer, whether that's through early diagnosis, imaging, or even therapy. So something that I haven't discussed and how you can use engineering to to address kind of therapy issues so yeah please look out for that and yeah well so it sounds like you've not only given us something interesting to either listen to on the drive to work you've also provided some good bedtime reading with your textbook yeah that would definitely help <laughs> get a general idea of what's happening in the field if you're interested yeah fantastic dana well thanks so much again for your time and we look hearing from you again awesome thank you so much Glenn. Bye-bye. Well, that's it for this episode of The Pod of Asclepius. We hope you enjoyed it and will tune in for our next episode. If you're watching from YouTube, don't forget to subscribe to our channel and leave a like. You can also follow us on our other social media channels, including LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram. Have a great story or presentation that's ready for prime time? Or know someone who does? drop Glenn an email because he'd be happy to hear from you. We would like to thank our sponsors from the American Statistical Association section on Statistical Learning and Data Science, section on Medical Devices and Diagnostics, and North Carolina Chapter. The views expressed on the show are those of the speaker and not their employers, our sponsors, or anyone else not saying the words. <laughs>